For this morning's message, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Today, of course, is February 1st, 2004. And on February 1st, 1776, exactly 228 years ago today, if my math is right, James Taylor, not the singer, (laughs) awoke before dawn on his wedding day, a man without God. As he went about his morning work, threshing wheat in his barn, deep in thought, his heart was being strangely pulled toward heaven. The words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, kept running through his mind. He knelt praying in the straw, a man reborn. Suddenly he realized he was late for his wedding. And he ran out of his barn as fast as he could down the long hill to the snowy valley of Croydon, where the pealing church bells sang a loud invitation to the marriage of James Taylor and Betty Johnson. James Taylor, a young stonemason from Yorkshire in England's north country, had heard Jesus' words all his life. Even before his wedding day, conversion, he had, excuse me, even before his wedding day conversion, he had served as a bell ringer and a member of his choir at Royston Parish. But he had not known God personally. Until then, how God began his awakening, we don't know. It may have been the gospel readings he heard weekly from the lips of the village vicar or the dramatic conversion of his neighbors, Joseph and Elizabeth Shaw, from whose cottage he could often hear hymns rising with the wind that crossed the ridge. The whole neighborhood knew of the strange and narrow-minded Methodist notions of the Shaws. They also knew that Elizabeth had once been crippled with rheumatism, but now was hale and hearty and fully convinced that God had healed her instantly when she, quote, trusted the Lord, unquote. It may have been when young Taylor at the Maplewell Midsummer Fair listened intently as the radical Methodist preacher John Wesley boldly warned his lukewarm hearers of the wrath to come. What we do know is that on the morning of February 1st, 1776, while lost in the contemplation of the eternal state of his soul and late for his own wedding, he said, I do, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Betty Johnson had never intended to marry a Methodist, but the new bride soon followed her husband into the kingdom of God as part of the glorious revival that was sweeping Great Britain and Ireland. The Spirit of God was doing a mighty work among people at all levels of society. After a serious accident some years later, James Taylor was forced to give up his career as a stonemason. The couple, now with a young family in tow, 
moved to a nearby mining town where Taylor eventually became the Methodist preacher. His faithfulness in ministry in a spiritually resistant corner of the nation laid a strong foundation of Christian commitment of generations of tailors to come. On a day in May 1832, with the warm spring sun melting the late winter snows in the Yorkshire valleys, a baby boy was born. Great-grandson to the deceased stonemason and Methodist minister James Taylor, the child was James Hudson Taylor. We, of course, know him as J. Hudson Taylor. Hudson, as the boy was called, eventually became the first Protestant missionary to inland China. Why do I tell that story? Well, because I think it speaks so marvelously of the sovereign purposes of God. It details for us the effectual calling of a man in a barn with such a rapt attention to the callings of the gospel of God through the evident purposes of God the effectual calling of a man through the family of another man and ultimately through a baby boy who became the missionary, J. Hudson Taylor, who was to have such a great spiritual impact on China through China Inland Mission. And all of this speaks of the great work of God in His electing grace and His sovereign purposes to call other men and women to faith in Christ and then call them to a great work of service and ministry for Christ thereafter. And this, beloved people, is precisely what the Apostle Paul speaks of here in Romans 1.1 as he mentions his own introduction to the Roman church. And this is what is going to occupy us this morning. It is so captivating, this study of the sovereign calling of God upon Paul's life and service and how he himself describes it to the Romans. Now overall, from Romans 1, 1 to 7, I want you to notice three specific features which open up to us our own understanding of Paul's introduction to this letter. I want you to notice these three specific features because it opens us to the whole letter itself. Three specific features. I'll give it to you now. The first is the gospel proclamations man. The gospel proclamations man. That's in verse 1. Secondly, the gospel 
proclamation's message. The gospel proclamation's message. That's in verses 2 to 5. And then thirdly, the third specific feature is the gospel proclamation's members. That's in verses 6 and 7. The three features then are the gospel proclamation's man, that's Paul, verse 1. The gospel proclamation's message, that's the gospel, that's verses 2 to 5. And thirdly, the gospel proclamation's members, that's the Romans, that's in verses 6 and 7. And what is going to occupy us this morning is verse 1. That's the gospel proclamation's man and its implications for us. But for our purposes, let's read all of it in verses 1 to 7. You follow along as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about that first specific feature, the gospel proclamations man, verse 1. The first thing that Paul wants the Romans to understand about the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very one who is endeavoring to proclaim that gospel, namely Paul himself. And I don't want to go into great detail about the person of Paul because I've already given you in the messages already one, an entire biography of Paul to begin this series and last time to give you his heart regarding his passion for preaching the gospel. But what I do want to show you from verse 1, however, is what Paul does say about himself as he presents his ministry to these Romans. Now remember... He has neither founded nor visited this church himself. That's a very, very important point not to forget. He has neither visited nor founded this church. So he must introduce himself to these who are in the church. How does he do that? Well, according to verse 1, he writes three specific things. One, he says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Secondly, he says he's called to be an apostle. And thirdly, set apart for the gospel of God. 
In other words, these are what he proclaims as his own identifying marks. His credentials of authority, which brings credibility to his ministry. It's almost as though he's saying, here's the the triad of credibility about my ministry. These are the proclamations of himself. The gospel's proclamation of the man himself. Now first, he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And the Greek word is doulos for servant. And it's sometimes translated slave. It may be that way in your Bible. I'm using here the English standard version of the Bible. And he says doulos. And he's surely emphasizing his allegiance to Jesus as the master of his life. The phrase doulos of Christ Jesus has a counterpart, by the way, in the Hebrew Old Testament. Servant of Yahweh. It's where many of the patriarchs and the prophets, like Moses, Joshua, Abraham, David, Isaiah, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, etc., were called servants of Yahweh. And that's no doubt where Paul's picking this up from. Borrowing it, borrowing it from the Old Testament, and he's saying, I too am a servant of the Lord. But notice, he's doing it far more. He's borrowing it and saying, I am a servant of someone else. But he's replacing the idea of being a servant, not of Yahweh, but a servant of whom? Isn't it interesting that he can interchange the idea of being a servant of Yahweh to being a servant of Christ Jesus? Apparently, he has no problem replacing the concept of the Old Testament Yahweh, the use of Yahweh, with the term Christ Jesus. Just according deity to Christ Jesus. Fascinating. And, of course, the very word doulos here is speaking of what? Humility. Humility. His proclamation of himself to the Romans is a humble proclamation. You remember when the Lord slammed him down on the Damascus road? You remember the very first thing that Saul, Paul, said on that road? Acts 22.10. Write that down in your notes. Acts 22.10. First thing that Saul Paul said was this. Acts 22.10. You don't have to turn there. Just write it down. Acts 22.10. This is what he said. What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? That was a note of submission. That was a note of submission. Paul's authority to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ is therefore a derived authority. And that is the very first thing, beloved, that he wants to tell these Roman believers. I'm not coming to you with my own authority. The very first thing he wants them to know in this letter is that I am coming to you as a doulos, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. 
Notice, he does not say to them that he is coming to them on his own authority. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. That is his basis of authority. He is a person who is coming not on his own authority, but he is coming and he is according deity to Jesus Christ. And he is saying, he is my master. He's not proudly boasting of his own accomplishments, nor is he proclaiming the gospel of God on the basis of his own merits, but on the merits of his master. It isn't something that Paul or any other preacher has inherently derived on their own, on their own initiative, not at all. It is a humble privilege to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. By the way, as an aside, that is why false teachers never liked Paul. Because he was so humble. And that's why they were always taking pot shots at him. Always. And that's why when he went to the Thessalonians, he said he was coming to them as a tender mother and as an encouraging, imploring father. And that's why he always said, we did not come to you in this way, but we were coming to you in that way. Humbly. Mark it down. Mark it down. Every false teacher will either explicitly or implicitly lead you to believe that their message is ultimately to be believed on the basis of their own authority because their proclamation is rooted in pride. They want you to believe their message and they want you to believe their message is coming from their own authority. Oh, they may say it's coming from God. But you listen to them long enough and they'll want you to believe that their message is of their own doing. Listen to them long enough and you'll see that coming through. Paul says here, he is a slave of Christ Jesus. Christ is the Lord of Paul's life. And from the very first moment, what would you have me do, Lord? He's the master of Paul's destiny. Word of application here. Who's the master of your life? Who has mastery of your life? Whose mastery are you under? Can you say with confidence and assurance as you sit here listening to my words that Jesus Christ is the master of your life? Now don't tell me that He's your Savior as divorced from the mastery of your life. That debate has raged for some 20 years now about Jesus being someone's Savior but not being one's Lord. That doesn't wash according to Scripture. You can't have it as though Jesus is your Savior but not as your Lord. As you survey your life and on the balance of your life, do you live your life in humility or pride? Would Jesus be pleased with how your service to Him is being exercised? Is He your master? Remember too, 
that Paul is about to announce the gospel to these people in Rome. And as we study this letter, this should be a strong reminder and rebuke to us that as we proclaim the gospel to those in our sphere of influence, that as we do it, do we say to people, is Jesus the Lord of your life? And then that question comes immediately back to us, is Jesus the Lord of my life? You see, it's a self-purifying question. Does Christ own my life? Can, Can I claim Him as my Lord? Can Christ Jesus be so seen in the phraseology of my life? Do I trust Him each day or do I want to take the reins of my life back to myself? Do I serve as the master of my life or am I the servant of Christ Jesus as Paul says here? I hope we could all say that. You remember Isaiah 66 too? This is what God says, But this is the one to whom I will look. This is what God is looking for. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? Humble, contrite in spirit. That's what a slave does. That's what a servant does. Who trembles at his master's word. Who jumps at the Master's Word. Whatever you say, Lord, I want to do. I am at your beck and call. That's what Paul says. This is the first line of the epistle. Is that how you would start your letter to your Lord? Is this how you would identify yourself to your family? Is this how you would write your letter to those around you? Is this how someone would identify your life? If you were put on the witness stand for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? There's a second phrase which Paul uses here in verse 1, and it is this, called to be an apostle. Now, we have to be careful with the word apostle as used here because there is a technical sense to this word. Technical sense. And it is used here by Paul in that technical sense. Like, Paul is using it of himself here and the original 12 disciples called by the Lord Jesus himself. There is a more elastic sense of that word, the more generic sense, the less technical sense. There were other apostles of the first century referenced in a few passages of the New Testament, spoken of, we could say, in a non-technical sense. But the ones commissioned by the Lord Himself, including Paul, on the Damascus Road as the 13th Apostle, 
the way he refers to himself as the one untimely born, the one coming last of all. That's how he designates himself. That technical sense of things, the way he uses it here, is how we might say is an apostle with a capital A. Big apostle, big A apostle. That's that's what he means here. One who is sent, one who is sent with a message, one who's commissioned. That's the idea of apostleship. That's what he means here, apostolos. Others, however, in a less technical sense, were sent with a message to proclaim. That's what we could say is somebody with a small a apostleship. Small a, generic. Obviously, though, the key to understanding Paul's technical sense here is the verb called. Kletos, called, is God effectually calling Paul to the office of apostleship with a capital A. And that's what he's saying here. I am called to the office of apostleship with a capital A. And here he's talking authority. So there's a very interesting play here in the first phrase, servant of Christ Jesus, and it has humility wrapped all around it. Now he says, called to apostleship, capital A, and it has authority wrapped all around it. With a note of humility. Look at verse 5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And even though he speaks in the plural, he's referring to himself here. This is literally a gracious gracious apostleship. God, in His sovereign mercy and grace, has called Paul into an official office of apostleship by His grace, His mercy to the Gentile world. And and while there's tremendous authority bound up in his role as an apostle, I love that idea, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. And there's where that humility comes in. Gracious apostleship. He never loses sight of this humility that he's received. Make no mistake about it, according to verse 5, don't miss this, it is something he has received. It's a, it's a grace gift received. Do you remember what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7? He asked the Corinthians this question. What did you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why did you boast as if you did not receive it? That's a great question. What a great question. Hey, look! Corinthians, you know, who'd been, who'd been graced, who'd been gifted with all kinds of spiritual gifts, probably more than any other church in that day. If, if you'd been given a gift, if you'd, if you'd been graced with all these gifts, if you had been receiving all these things, why did you boast if you'd not received it? That's Paul. I've been given these things. I can't boast. As though I'd not received it. I've been given this grace of apostleship. So while there's 
while there's an authority here, I'm an authoritative apostle. I've seen the risen Christ. <coughs> that's, that's by the way, why, <coughs> excuse me, on that apostle, on that uh, Damascus road, he wasn't just having some mystical experience. Don't, don't do justice on that apostleship road there in Damascus by saying, well, Paul had some kind of mystical experience. No, he didn't. He saw the risen Christ. It wasn't just some mystical thing. He saw with his eyes. It wasn't just some vision as though it was some mystical deal. He saw Christ. That was one of the requirements according to the first chapter of Acts in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He saw Christ. That was one of the requirements to be an apostle. He saw Christ on that road. And because he saw Christ, he had the authority of an apostle And so therefore there is a note of that authority, but he didn't just take that authority and run with it. There was a humility attached to that. And Paul says here, I received a gracious apostleship according to verse 5. Yes, there is an authority here, but it's a gracious apostleship. So what's, what's he doing in the middle part of verse 1? He's speaking of humility again. And that's precisely what happened to James Taylor in that barn. I mean, do you think he was just working in that barn? At one point he was thinking about that wedding. And do you think he just conjured up on his own, Oh, I think I'll become a Christian now. Of course not. What was God doing? God had a sovereign plan that included the turning up, side down, China for Christ. And it was going to happen... In the next century. And God included in His sovereign plan, in His efficacious grace, the salvation of a man named James Taylor, who would come from a great-grandson in the next century, J. Hudson Taylor and China Inland Mission, and it would start by the effectual calling of sovereign grace... James Taylor, and it started in a barn while he was gathering up some wheat, and it was through the hymn singing and the preaching, and ultimately through the ministry of the Wesleys, the idea that a sovereign God, through the preaching and the singing and the witnessing of other people, by His sovereign mercy alone, and at that appointed time that God had planned from eternity past, The salvation of a man who would say, I do, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's sovereign work. God had a plan. That's that's what's happening here. 200 some years ago today. That's what God's doing And then calling him into Christian ministry, the ministry of preaching, and he received it from God. And you don't boast about that when you receive it. You don't boast about that at all. That's why, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1, the language Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Called by the will of God. 
The sovereign will of God. It's the will of God. You don't do what you do in the Christian life, whether it's salvation or service, unless it is the sovereign will of God. Galatians 1, Paul, and apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Any clearer than that? Need any more proof? Not from men, nor through man, but through the agency of Jesus Christ and God the Father. It says in verse 15, And who called me by His grace. Oh my. 1979, I was barely a Christian. Barely a Christian. Months old in the Lord. And I was part of a Christian group. And in this Christian group, they said, well now you need to go to Daytona Beach, Florida for spring break. And you need to go witnessing to people. And I said, okay. And so they shoved us in this hotel room and it was several floors up. And so I went down and started witnessing to these bathing people on the beach. And what an experience that was. And so at one point I went back up to the hotel room and I was all alone and I was months old in the Lord And nobody else was in the room. And I went out to the balcony. And I looked. Went out on the balcony. And I looked and I saw tens of thousands of people on that beach. And I see it in my mind's eye right now like it was yesterday. And this was the thought I had. And it's impressed upon my mind to this very day. These people are like sheep without a shepherd. And they need Christ. And this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's never left me. That's what I want to do. That's a call. And I didn't know what that was. And I didn't know how to define it. And I didn't know what it meant. But I know now that that's what I thought God was going to do in my life. And I studied. And I worked. And I did what the counsel of others encouraged me to do. And here I am. Twenty-five Years later, when I went to that retreat last weekend, I was teaching on 
Friday night. And after I finished that first message, a man came up to me. I didn't know who he was. He said to me, Pastor Quinn, you probably don't remember me, but he said, the first time you ever preached at Grace Church, I came to Jesus Christ. And I was speechless. I was just speechless. I went back to my room and I called my wife and I was so humbled. So humbled. That God would use me as an instrument to preach a message that would bring anybody to Jesus Christ. Twenty-five years. God has ceased calling anyone anymore in the apostolic sense. And He may not be calling you today like me to be a preacher of the gospel in an official sense. But if He's called you to salvation and He's calling you to be a faithful witness to proclaim the truth of His Word to those around you, are you doing that? Are you taking the message that saved you and are you faithfully proclaiming it to others? Are you an apostle with a little a? You are called and sent with a message to proclaim. How are you faring with that message? Brothers and sisters, are you a faithful witness? Are you a poor witness? When was the last time you spoke to someone about Christ? Look at what Paul says here in verse 5. Don't miss it. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. All the nations have yet to hear the name of Christ. And some of your neighbors have not heard from you about Christ. How come? Be faithful to your calling. He hasn't just called you to salvation. He's called you to bear witness to His name. There's a third phrase that Paul lists here in verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. He says he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. In this clause, which I think further describes his calling, Paul says he's been set apart by God, or separated unto his calling by preaching the good news of salvation in Christ Turn to Galatians chapter 1. I think it's a great parallel passage to this phrase. What does he mean by set apart for the gospel of God? When did this take place? What is Paul reaching backward to say here? Here's exactly what I think he means. Galatians chapter 1. This is marvelous truth. This is how we're going to end this morning. This is marvelous truth. Galatians chapter 1. 
Galatians 1.15. But when He, that is God, when He who had set me apart, same word, same idea, same word group, but when He who had set me apart before I was born. This is... This is God's sovereign electing purposes before time began. Before I was born. This is like Jeremiah's call, isn't it? Jeremiah 1.5 He set me apart in my mother's womb. Before I was born. And who called me by His grace. Was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me so that no one could say, well, he's sort of a junior apostle. He got this from a man And we already learned from chapter 1, verse 1 of Galatians, that it wasn't from a man, nor was it through a man. It wasn't mediated by a human being. He says, God did it even before I was born. He had set me apart even in my mother's womb and even before them in eternity past. We even know from Acts 9.15, don't we, on that Damascus road... Jesus Christ, Acts 9.15, says, I've done it, I've called and commissioned Him. I, I have a commissioning. We even know that even His missionary endeavors, Acts 13.2, it says that the Holy Spirit wants to set apart, same idea, Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for missionary work. So we even know this idea of setting apart Aphoridzane, setting apart, separated, separated from the, the life he was living and now commissioning him, pushing him to a, a new life. And what new life is that to preach the gospel of God? Boy, what an introduction to the Romans. What an introduction. You notice not one time does he say, and I have a Ph.D. This is exactly what he says. This is exactly what he says. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, the, the apostle, therefore, is obviously concerned about the greatness and the glory of the gospel. That is why he's writing this letter to the Christians at Rome. He wants them to know about it. He has heard that they are already in the faith, but he seems to wonder whether they really have grasped it. He takes up his pen and inspired as he knows himself to be, and with all the authority of a called apostle, he is going to display it to them in all its fullness and and in all its grandeur. The gospel. Oh, how easily we use this term. How glibly we repeat it. I am as guilty as anybody else. It ought to be impossible for us to use the word gospel without bursting forth, as it were, into a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. Good news from God. That's the gospel. And that brings me to the most important thing of all. It is the gospel of God. 
In other words, it is what God has done about man and about his salvation. And that is why, of course, it is quite unique and quite new. I'm not going to write to you, says the apostle, about some human philosophy. I'm not going to give you my own ideas as to how life should be lived. I'm not going to tell you about what man has got to do. I'm going to tell you about what God has done. That's it, the good news from God. This is the good news from God. It's the good news of God. It's the gospel of God. You know what this book about, this book of Romans is all about? It's about God. Oh, don't you love to come to church to find out about God? You ought to be here tonight. There's nothing super about the world. But there is something super about God. That He saves sinners just like us. Let's pray together. Oh God, I ask myself and I ask ourselves, how are we responding as one of your messengers of the good news? Are we living a separated life unto you? Are we set apart? Set apart from the world? Set apart from the things of the world to preach the good news of yourself, of God? Do we acknowledge Your sovereign work in our life? Do we recognize Your calling as a slave, a servant of Your Son, Christ Jesus? Do we respond with humility? Do we take the message that we have been sent to proclaim, O Lord, Are we making a difference in those around us? Are we, are we communicating the truth? How many are perishing for lack of our communication to them about the truth? Lord, we pray that You would make us bold so that we might speak the truth of Christ. That we would be like Paul, so effervescent of things divine, and not be tied to the things of this earth. May we be resplendent with the things that matter and dim to the things that will fade with time. Oh, how we would want to spread your name among all the nations. May we do it so that the gospel of God 
would go forth and that the Lord Jesus would come and come quickly. For His sake we pray. Amen.